And so, after more than a year of living under the tightest restrictions because of COVID, we emerge from the tunnel into light. Come Monday, we have a sense of freedom, now in touching distance. The pandemic is not over. It perhaps is easing. SNP win historic fourth term in government at Holyrood. Gordon Brown says the UK union must reform to continue. And the election of the most powerful politician in Scotland. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. I can confirm 40,268 votes have been cast, the returning officer announced, representing a 69.9% turnout. Shocked gasps surrounded me and each journalist ran back to their table to fill the first story of the day. Pressure North delivers the highest turnout in the constituency's history. As we prepare to hug our mammies and grannies for the first time in more than a year, we get to the heart of the election count in Perth through the eyes of our reporter Ashley Keenan Bryce. She was there. As predicted on the week in Holyrood, you've returned Nicola Sturgeon as Scotland's First Minister. It was the most important election since devolution and the result means there will be a second referendum on Scottish independence in this session of Parliament. Nicola Sturgeon, leader of the Scottish National Party, your unionist opponents in this election say you're distracting debate away from health, education and justice by banging on about independence. I may be wrong, I've covered a few elections, but it seems to me they talk more about it than you do. Well, I think you're right, Charles, that it certainly seems to me that they spend more time talking about independence than I do. And I've come to the conclusion that that is because they have nothing else to talk about. They are bereft of positive, forward-looking policies. By contrast, the SNP have published a very progressive, transformative manifesto full of policies on health, education, justice, the economy, tackling climate change policies to kickstart and drive our recovery once we have come through this acute phase of COVID. Um, And yes, when the crisis has passed, we do want to give people in Scotland the choice of independence because we believe it's not up to politicians to decide Scotland's future. It is up to the people of Scotland. But at the moment, my 100% focus, as it has been throughout the last year, is steering and guiding the country as best I can through the COVID crisis. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson says now is not the time. The First Minister Nicola Sturgeon tends to agree as she focuses on getting the country through COVID. She says that's her priority but Nicola Sturgeon puts Westminster on clear alert. It's not a question of if there will be Indiref 2, it's simply a question of when. There will be a pro-independence majority in that Scottish Parliament. And by any normal standard of democracy, that majority should have the commitments it made to the people of Scotland honoured. So for any Westminster politician who tries to stand in the way of that, I would say two things. Firstly, you're not picking a fight with the SNP. You're picking a fight with the democratic wishes of the Scottish people. And secondly, you will not succeed. The only people who can decide the future of Scotland are the Scottish people uh, and no Westminster politician can or should stand in the way of that. It's, it's for when the Scottish Parliament, when it decides is right to make the preparations for an independence referendum, if Boris Johnson or whoever is Prime Minister at the time has any respect for Scottish democracy, they will come together with the Scottish Government, as happened in the run-up to 2014, and agree that transfer of power. Uh, and if they refuse to do that, then they will have to take the decision to legally challenge the ability of the Scottish Parliament to deliver on what the people of Scotland voted for and the absurdity and outrageous nature of that. A Westminster government potentially going to court to overturn Scottish democracy. I can't think of a more powerful argument for Scottish independence than that one. The constitutional issue continues to dominate Scottish politics. When David Cameron was Prime Minister, he agreed to a referendum. His successor, Theresa May, refused to a follow-up. The current Conservative Premier, Boris Johnson, repeats her view that now is not the time. 
Former Prime Minister and Fife MP Gordon Brown says those in favour of the UK Union must up their game. And that includes the current Prime Minister. There's a middle group of people in Scotland who may think that they uh, want independence at the moment and may desire it, but they also want better cooperation between Scotland and the UK. They don't want to cut off the British dimension entirely. And so we've got to find a means of doing that. A more inclusive centre, better relationships between the regions and nations and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and, and, and also, I think, just looking at all those issues where climate change, you can't do it without working together. And I think when people look at it, we've got time now to do so, they'll find cooperation within the United Kingdom is better than separation. Is that exciting enough, though, do you think? I think cooperation, solidarity, empathy, sharing, these are all really important values, and they've been lost in this debate about independence so far. Do you think flying flags and basing ministers in Scotland is just a, a gimmick, really, by Boris Johnson? No, muscular unionism, what it's called, which is putting up more flags, and it's uh, badging bridges and roads uh, with a UK... Uh, flag on them, and it's bypassing the Scottish uh, government and Scottish institutions, it won't work. Because what he's trying to do is set up a competition between Britain and Scotland. He's got to be someone who tries to unite the country, and he cannot be at war with part of it. The election was all about voting in parties and selecting who would be First Minister. After that, the battle got underway to elect the most powerful politician in the land. There's one person who can tell the First Minister to sit down. The presiding officer is a key role at Holyrood. Members have elected Alison Johnston to the role. Elected as a member of the Scottish Greens, she immediately forfeits her party allegiance for the neutral role as the figurehead of the Scottish Parliament. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, That means a lot. I'm very, very grateful. Um, I'm sorry I didn't have a contest today, but I'm very proud to be in this position. For those of you who don't know, I joined Scotland Forward, the campaign for a devolved parliament, before I joined the Scottish Green Party. That was back in the the late 90s. Um, And, you know, it's it's just such a very important place for me. I was then really fortunate to to get a job with Robin Harper, who was the first elected Green Parliamentarian in the UK here in 1999. I've been in this building in a, in a couple of guises and it's been an absolute privilege to serve as a Scottish Green Party representative um, for Lothian Region. And I'd really like to just take this opportunity to thank my, my little staff team of um, Sally, Dan, Richard and Helen and all of those who have contributed in any way during the years because that team has changed. I'd also like to thank my Scottish Green Party colleagues and my party um, and, and everyone who's worked on such a... a fabulous election campaign. Um, But here today I've been afforded a great opportunity and an incredible privilege and one that I will never ever take for granted. Um, And before I forget I'd also like to thank my very patient and tolerant family. Um, I think you have afforded me the opportunity to take on a major challenge at an incredibly important time in Scotland's history. We face various challenges we're just coming out of the end, we hope, although you know we hear worrying statistics, on a daily basis of a pandemic that has affected the lives of each and every one of us. We've lost loved ones, people have lost livelihoods. It's a very, very challenging time for us all, and it's the duty of the government and the parliament um, to do everything that we can to make sure that those living in Scotland have the best lives that they possibly can, that we continue to work together and cease to, to reduce inequality and poverty. I want to encourage a a culture of open debate in this parliament. I think we should be able to to have that debate, but I'd like to do so in an atmosphere of inclusivity, mutual tolerance and respect. Um, I think it's absolutely fabulous that in this new session I see more diversity. I mean, it's it's absolutely clear and that that is welcome. We see more people from, from minority ethnic backgrounds. I see far more women. This is fabulous progress, but we're not there yet. Um, and, you know, I think I know from hosting with Pam Duncan-Glancy that we have a real champion there for, for people, for disabled people. Um, but we can do better. I mean, I think we need to get to the stage where this parliament truly represents all people in Scotland, people from the LGBT community, so that we really mirror those who live in our streets and in our neighbourhoods. Um, there are challenges ahead, of course. We are in the midst of the nature and the climate emergency. 
you know, as well as the pandemic, we have to tackle them. Our young people have done such a fabulous job bringing this issue to life. They've helped us, you know, they've helped ensure that we adults debate it properly on their behalf. We only have a few years to act. And I think it's really important that Scotland makes the most of the opportunity that COP26 will provide. I will do my very best to, you know, to make sure that each and every one of you has an opportunity to best represent your constituents, your interests and everything that is important to you. Um, I obviously recognise a lot of old faces. I mean experienced faces. Um, and you know, there's a lot of new faces too. And we're all going to have an opportunity to get to know one another better over the next few weeks, months and years. But I just want to assure you that I will do my very best in this role as Ken McIntosh um, has done. I mean, obviously, you know, very large shoes to fill. Um, and I think he's done an exceptional job for which I am very grateful. Um, but thank you all. There's growing concern over the number of COVID cases in Glasgow. It comes as the city gets set to come down to level two restrictions along with most of the country. Mori is expected to remain in level three. The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says it's an emotional journey reducing restrictions and giving the green light to hugs and handshakes. We will be able to meet outdoors in groups of eight uh, from up to eight households rather than in groups of six from six households as is the case now. And even more significantly, we will be able from Monday to meet in each other's homes and that includes for overnight stays. Now, it was initially intended that at level two, up to four people from no more than two households could meet indoors. However, we consider that it is possible now to go slightly further than that so from Monday, up to six people from three households will be able to meet indoors in each other's houses. Now, this is still a cautious change, but it is also a hugely important one. It is almost eight months now since most of us have been able to meet in each other's homes. And it has been even longer than that for those of us living in Glasgow and Lanarkshire. I know how much everyone has been looking forward to being able to do this again. It is one of the simple pleasures of life that I suspect, and I hope actually, that none of us will ever take quite so much for granted again. Now, this is an important change in and of itself, but I am also pleased to say that in one respect, we consider that it is possible at this stage to go further than previously anticipated. So from Monday, if you are meeting friends and family, within the permitted limits, of course, either indoors in a private dwelling, a house, or in your garden, our guidance will say that it is no longer necessary to maintain physical distance. Which means, uh, and I actually feel a wee bit emotional saying this, that from Monday, as long as you stay within permitted limits, you can hug your loved ones again. As the sixth session of the Scottish Parliament gets underway, the Queen went to the Palace of Westminster to outline her government's plans for the year ahead. As she officially reopened Parliament, the Queen's speech highlighted 30 laws Boris Johnson intends to pass in the coming year. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, my Government's priority is to deliver a national recovery from the pandemic that makes the United Kingdom stronger, healthier and more prosperous than before. To achieve this, my government will level up opportunities across all parts of the United Kingdom, supporting jobs, businesses and economic growth, and addressing the impact of the pandemic on public services. My government will protect the health of the nation, continuing the vaccination programme and providing additional funding to support the NHS. My ministers will bring forward legislation to empower the NHS to innovate and embrace technology. Patients will receive more tailored and preventative care closer to home. Measures will be brought forward to support the health and well-being of the nation, including to tackle obesity and improve mental health. Proposals on social care reform will be brought forward. My government will build on the success of the vaccination programme to lead the world in life sciences, pioneering new treatments against diseases like cancer, 
and securing jobs and investment across the country. My ministers will oversee the fastest ever increase in public funding for research and development and pass legislation to establish an advanced research agency. One of the measures the government will pursue in the new session of Parliament at Westminster is the repeal of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act 2011. This is the act brought in by the coalition government under David Cameron and Nick Clegg. It essentially took away the privilege of the Prime Minister of the day to call an election when they wanted to. It gives sitting Prime Ministers the opportunity to make the most of going to the country when they're doing well in the opinion polls. Although that didn't quite work out for Theresa May, who called an election and lost her majority. A side effect of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is the extension of Scottish parliamentary sessions. Originally set for four years, Session 4 was extended by a year to avoid a clash of dates for the Scottish and general elections. Session 5 lasted five years and subsequently this new period, Session 6, will run until May 2026. Well, given the fact the Scottish Parliament again has a majority of members in favour of independence, there's pressure on Westminster to agree to another referendum. Boris Johnson continues to say no, but it's unlikely Downing Street can hold that line for very much longer. Here's Kieran Jenkins at Channel 4 News. After sweeping her opponents aside, Nicola Sturgeon says her priority is the pandemic. But the mind games over an independence referendum are intensifying. Uh, welcome, Mr Gove. Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove said this morning the UK government wouldn't challenge a referendum in the... But he questioned the SNP's mandate for requesting one. Talk of Tories softening on a referendum, surely premature. What we cannot afford is anyone taking their eye off the ball when it comes to recovery, when it comes to investment in the NHS, by having a conversation about uh, a protracted conversation about the Constitution. That's the first point. The second point to bear in mind is that a majority of people who voted in the constituencies voted for parties that were opposed to a a referendum. Nicola Sturgeon back to work with clear instructions, she believes, from the electorate for the right to vote on independence again. Have you got a mandate? Michael Gove suggesting you haven't got um, one. Yes, I do, but my first priority is to get back into Butte House here and continue to steer the country through the COVID crisis. It's another remarkable victory. 85% of constituencies went SNP which did make picking up seats on the regional list under proportional representation all the harder. And while Scotland is pretty evenly split on independence, elections are about seats, and the old parties of the union are very much outnumbered here now. The SNP got its second highest ever seat total, while the Greens, also committed to a referendum, have never had more MSPs. Neither have the Tories, while Labour and the Lib Dems have never had fewer. Overall, it's the biggest ever majority of pro-independence parties at Holyrood, dwarfing the number of unionist seats, 72 to 57. The Tories chuffed there is no SNP majority. They argue that's what it took Alex Salmond to get a referendum in 2011. But in this parliament, theirs is a minority view. We've won that election overwhelmingly. And so the battle for public opinion is already well underway. Nicola Sturgeon will attend Boris Johnson's pandemic summit. The Tories talking up what they're calling Team UK, even as Team Scotland prepares to put in a transfer request. The First Minister says Westminster can't halt the democratic will of the people and the people have given their support to Indiref too. Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross had a good election. His critics may say he didn't have a good campaign, but in the end he retained every seat from the last session of Parliament. The Conservatives have returned with 31 members. No gains, but critically for him, no losses. Douglas Ross opposes another independence referendum and says despite Nicola Sturgeon's insistence there will be one, 
He says she can't have it. What the Scottish Parliament can and cannot do is clearly defined in the Scotland Act. And what Nicola Sturgeon is suggesting uh, is going ahead with something that's out with the powers of the Scottish Parliament. In 2014, when the SNP got a referendum, they called it the gold standard of referendums because it had a Section 30 order from the UK government. I mean, they won 64 seats. Um, If they'd have won 65 seats and had an outright majority all by themselves, um, would they have had a mandate for an independence referendum? Well, that's clearly how they achieved the independence referendum in 2014, was winning a majority in the 2011 election. So if they'd have won one more seat, you'd you'd have backed a referendum? Is that what you're saying? We said... We said during this election that the way to stop an SNP majority and a way to stop a second independence referendum was voting Scottish Conservatives. And that's why I believe we've had our best ever result here in Scotland, holding 31 seats. But just back to this point, I mean, are you, are you really saying that if the SNP had won one more seat, um, then you'd be fine with the referendum going ahead? That that's no, the I never difference. want another... I never want no, but another you'd accept that you, wouldn't, you didn't have a right to stop it? No, what I'm saying is there was an opportunity, as there have been in the last two elections, for the SNP to be returned with a majority. Mm. The public across Scotland have decided to stop that. But would that that have been a mandate? They, sorry, I was just saying they've decided to stop that and they did so by supporting the Scottish Conservatives in record numbers. But, but, but would, in your terms, an SNP majority in its, on its own have been a mandate for a second referendum? Well, I explained a couple of answers ago. That's how they achieved a referendum so in 2014. So the answer well, is yes, that's it how would. They did it. I mean, that's, that's history. I'm it. talking about the future. Would it have been, for the future, a mandate for a second referendum? I'm saying that's exactly how they went about holding yes, you a keep referendum talking about the in past. 2014. I want, to, I want well, you to talk well, about the future. Well, we know what happened in the past. Yeah. You're asking so me you to predict so, another so, election. So what I'm pointing out is the absurdity of your position, only... which is that if they'd have just won one more seat in this very complex system, they'd have had a mandate for an independence referendum in your terms, but because they didn't, they don't. Well, well, they had a mandate in 2011 because they got a majority, and that's how they held the 2014 referendum. But at the two successive attempts for Nicola Sturgeon to gain a majority, she has failed. And I think a lot of what we're hearing from Nicola Sturgeon and her supporters within the SNP about court battles and the UK government taking the Scottish government to court is all just a bit of deflection from the fact that she has failed now on two occasions to secure a majority that the SNP were previously able to achieve here in Scotland. Some people think you're doing exactly what the SNP want now, which is saying no when the parliamentary democratic conclusion of this election is clearly an even more pro-independence parliament than there was before the election, and that all you'll do is stoke pro-independence feeling. Are you sure you've got the right strategy for the union? Well, I would question Nicola Sturgeon's strategy, telling people on Tuesday that they could vote SNP and it wouldn't be taken as a mandate for another independence referendum, and then by Friday going on all the television uh, stations to say she now has a mandate for a second independence referendum. I think many people in Scotland will be bitterly disappointed uh, that their vote is now being used in this way by Nicola Sturgeon when she gave an assurance it wouldn't be. Ruth Davidson, your predecessor, has, has done a very interesting thread on Twitter talking about you, saying... You know, you weren't, you weren't interested in being personally popular. You were very focused on just doing the right thing. I mean, do you, do you feel that that's a fair characterisation? Have you taken a lot of personal flack during the course of this campaign? Would you like to be liked more now? Sometimes in politics, you know, the most important thing is results. Uh, and the fact is the other pro-UK parties who, who also uh, took some shots at me have gone backwards. They've lost seats. Uh, the Scottish Conservatives have maintained our position as the main opposition in Scotland. We've held our uh, seats at 31 and we've increased our vote share. So whatever people have said about me during the campaign or will continue to say, uh, I'll take that as a success for the Scottish Conservatives and the people who have been supporting our party um, both uh, in the campaigning and with their votes over the last few weeks. The SNP has been returned for a historic fourth term in government at Holyrood. With 64 members elected, Nicola Sturgeon is just one seat short of an overall majority. This in a parliamentary system that's designed never to have any single party in a majority. SNP Deputy Leader Keith Brown tells Sophie Ridge at Sky News there's an overall majority of members at Holyrood for an independence referendum. That's when you tally up the 64 SNP and the 7 Scottish Greens.
He says the referendum will happen, but Mr Brown stresses the current priority is dealing with the pandemic. At the start of the campaign, there was a lot of optimism, shall we say, about the uh, SNP getting that overall majority. You didn't manage to do it. It certainly would have made the push for a second referendum uh, a bit easier, wouldn't it? It, Are you disappointed you fell short? Uh, Disappointed in a historic uh, fourth win for the SNP? No. Uh, I think at the start of a campaign, you have three goals in mind. One is to win the election, which we did in spectacular fashion, to increase the number of votes that you have, which we've done. More votes at this election than any other party's ever achieved in the devolved parliament. And also more seats. We won seats. The Tories lost seats. Labour lost seats. The SNP have done all these three things. And also, of course, there is an independence majority in the parliament. So an astonishingly good result for the SNP and, I believe, for Scottish democracy. Uh, you're talking there about the pro-independence majority uh, in the Scottish Parliament. We've been talking about it a lot uh, on the show as well. Um, a majority of MSPs support independence, if you look at the SNP and the Scottish Greens. But if you look at vote shares, the pro-independence parties won less than 50%, yourself and the Scottish Greens. And the anti-referendum parties won more than 50%. So on that basis, you know, one person, one vote then actually would it be democratic to push for another referendum? This is just an absolutely bizarre argument. Uh, David Cameron got around 36% of the vote when he took forward a Brexit referendum, of course against the wishes of people in Scotland. If the uh, election that we had yesterday had been held at Westminster on constituencies, we'd have a majority of about 400. So the idea that in a parliamentary party election you don't have a mandate when the main party uh, and other parties have more than 50% of the seats, it really comes down to a vote in the parliament. And I didn't hear anybody say saying during all the endless Brexit votes that we had when different parties voted for the same thing on many occasions, that that invalidated the result. This is democracy. Uh, The SNP have done extremely well. We will have a majority for an independence referendum in the Parliament. But for the first 100 days, as has been made clear by the First Minister, we'll be concentrating on the recovery, the health service, education and the health of the people in Scotland. Yeah, it's interesting, because you're talking about focusing on uh, the recovery. Um, At what point do you start to push for another independence referendum? The reason I'm asking this question is it feels to me a little bit like the timeline is slipping, that it's in nobody's interest to do it right now, including your own. Is that fair? When do you want to see another referendum? I think most people in the independence movement, we want to see it as soon as possible, but they also realise that we're in the grip of a pandemic, and that is still a very real threat. We've seen a slight uptick in some areas in Scotland in recent days in terms of the uh, incidence of coronavirus, and that's got to be the priority for everybody. I think all the parties have agreed on that. I think it's also true to say, though, that the election we've just had was not a normal election, even though we had a fantastic increase in turnout. There wasn't the usual hustings, the public debates, the town hall meetings, and I think we'd all want to see, when there is to be the independence referendum, a much more full-blooded, uh, engaged uh, campaign on that issue. So we'll know when the uh, public health uh, situation is right and the Scottish Parliament will take the decision as to exactly when that happens and when the referendum should be. Uh, can you not give us any guidance at all on when you think it would be the right time to you know, push for another referendum? Well, I I don't think you've seen anything different from Boris Johnson, Mark Drakeford or Nicola Sturgeon, who do not predict when the end of the pandemic is, because we know how unpredictable this uh, disease is, and also because of the new variants as well. So it's a hostage to fortune to start putting a time limit on that, but we will know when it's over, we will know when it's safe to have that full-blooded campaign that I've mentioned. But until that happens, our concentration has to be uh, focused on the pandemic, making sure that we drive down coronavirus and look after the public health of the people in Scotland. Can you guarantee a referendum by the end of 2024, as you previously said? Well, the only caveat to that, of course, would be the pandemic. But yes, that's our intention, is to have that referendum. I've said as soon as possible. And we are making fantastic progress with the uh, pandemic and the fight against coronavirus, as you can see in the figures now. Uh, But that threat is still there. And, of course, there is also the threat of new variants of the virus. So nobody can put time limits on that. No politician is doing that just now. And it's unreasonable, I think, to ask them to do that. But at the earliest possible opportunity, when it's safe to do so, we will move to have the referendum, the the one that Scotland has just voted for in massive numbers. If Boris Johnson refuses to grant another referendum or if the Supreme Court finds it would be illegal because it doesn't fall under the powers of the uh, Scottish Parliament uh, to move the legislation, 
What would you then do? Would you just hold an independence referendum anyway? Well, first of all, I've never believed that Boris Johnson would continue to, as he would see it, veto Scottish democracy after the result of an election like the one we had yesterday. I've never believed that would be the case. And I think you're seeing already some changing language from the UK government, which was inevitable. It's also true to say that Boris Johnson is a man that's not a stranger to U-turns. If you think about just his manifesto at the recent election, he said he wouldn't reduce the size of the armed forces and then promptly did. He signed an international treaty, which he then renounced pretty much as soon as he'd signed it. So Boris Johnson will change to take account of the political circumstances in Scotland. And we will proceed with the referendum. The referendum will happen. It's going to happen. I think the Conservatives, many of whom I've spoken to, understand that's the case. The only issue is when the time is right, and the time will be right when it's safe to have that referendum. I understand that, you know, you don't believe Boris Johnson, but I'm not asking you what you think Boris Johnson will do. I'm asking what you will do. If either the Supreme Court says the referendum would be, you know, effective an illegal one, or if Boris Johnson refuses to grant it, would you hold a referendum anyway in those circumstances? Well, you'd ask me to jump past what I don't believe, and I don't believe that Boris Johnson will, as you say, veto this. So I don't think that's going to happen. So you're now into a hypothetical situation. And, of course, it wouldn't be the Scottish Government that would be taking legal action. The Scottish Government will proceed if the Scottish Parliament votes for the referendum. We would like to do that on the basis of a Section 30 agreement. That makes sure it's all agreed as it was back in 2014 or previously 2012 with David Cameron. We'd like to do it on that basis. That's the right way to do it. And I believe that will happen. I think that's what's going to happen. But in the event that there's any uh, denial of Scottish democracy, in the event that Boris Johnson, uh, Johnson tries to do a Trump and try and use the legal process to subvert Scottish democracy, I believe the referendum will still happen. Now to Westminster and to what former Prime Minister David Cameron calls a painful day. He clashed with MPs in a stormy committee hearing over his lobbying for financier Lex Greensill. Mr Cameron was accused at one stage of demeaning both himself and the position he once held. This is a painful day, coming back to a place that I love and respect so much, albeit virtually, um, but in these circumstances. Obviously, COVID was going to have its impact, but at no stage um, in those conversations was, was I aware in any way of any concern um, that, you know, Greensill would be in any serious financial difficulty. This might be a tougher year than the one before. Uh, no one could quite tell what was round the corner, but there was no, certainly no sense of jeopardy. I was paid an annual amount, a generous annual amount, far more than what I earned as Prime Minister. And I had uh, shares, not share options, but shares in the business, which vested over the period of time of my uh, contract. Um, and so it's, like it's important for the committee to know that I, you know, was absolutely had a big economic investment in the future of Greensill. I wanted the business to succeed. I wanted it to grow. The fact that I had this economic interest and a serious economic interest, that's important. But I don't think the amount is particularly germane to answering those questions. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a private matter. Do you view the £60 million figure as just totally absurd? Or yeah. It's a completely absurd figure, but I can tell you the motivation for contacting the government was that I thought we had a really good idea for how to help, uh, how to help extending credit to thousands of businesses. Many people would conclude that at the time of your lobbying, your opportunity to make a large amount of money was under threat. I spent most of my adult life in public service. I believe in it deeply. I would never put forward something that I didn't think was absolutely in the interests of the public good. I did not believe in March or April, uh, when I was doing this contact, that there was a risk of Greensill falling over. Every election brings change, and this year sees a major change for a former government minister and party leader. Elected in 1999 to the first Scottish Parliament, Joanne Lamond brought her lifelong links with the Labour Party to Edinburgh. She says she's always been political, but 22 years ago, someone started to pay her for it. She's now stood down. It's a privilege to have been a minister in the early years of coalition government between Labour and the Lib Dems, she says. As leader of her party, she realised the best way to have an impact at the weekly session of questions to the First Minister was to jab at Alex Hammond. Joanne Lamont says she long knew his weak spot. He can't stand people laughing at him. This week she reflects on her time in Holyrood 
with journalism students at Glasgow Clyde College. It does feel very strange and I haven't really... I mean, I decided after the last election that I wasn't coming back, so it's something that I was preparing for. But of course, the last year and a half has been so odd that everything has been so disrupted. So a bit of the feeling things were changing had already happened, you know, we were... And also, because of COVID, the last year and a half is really, I think, kind of sad. There's a sadness and a seriousness and a grimness that across our society just now because of the impact of COVID and that terrible anxiety about whether were we doing the right thing. So a lot of the things about your workplace that you remember when you, when you move on, the friendship, the comradeship, the camaraderie, the banter, the jokes, whatever you might want to call it. The last year and a half really wasn't like that. So even the sense of leaving it hasn't quite, you know, um, hit, hit me yet. I, I feel kind of, um, if in doubt about politics, you know, you at least can heckle if you're in the chamber. So there's, I'm kind of reduced to shouting at the telly a bit about what's going on. Um, and I'm also conscious of what a privilege it was to be there when you realise you're not there. But I think it's the equivalent as my teacher colleagues when I was still teaching when they retired, they said they didn't really realise that they had left until the schools went back. So I'm much more conscious of it now than even a couple, you know, at the time of the election. Now when you begin to see um, the formal processes and not really engage in the discussions around these things, which the outside world doesn't see, you know, the coming together of your party group, the discussion about, you know, what will be current just now, imagine we presiding officer, that kind of thing. You're not part of it, so that just makes you, that has made me realise, yes, you know, my engagement will be a very different from one from what it was before, but, you know, <clears throat> yeah, there, I just think there's a, that for me the decision was really, you know, do you want to leave at a point where you still feel you can make a contribution and you can go and do other things? And that's really what I've decided to do. Well, for me, I think it would have been it would have been an indulgence, really. It would be because I enjoyed it. I wasn't the extent to which you can influence and change things from where I would be sitting in the chamber has diminished over time. And what I hope in the next period is maybe to find some way of thinking and arguing and debating from a different place. Now, people don't need to listen to me. They have no obligation to listen to me. Um, the one thing about being an MSP, you know, people are obliged to give you an answer. But I, 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 that, to me, was, you know, the balance between... Well, if I'd been teaching still, as I did for 20 years, I would have been a lady who lunched four years ago. Maybe more than that, I might have been given early retirement. So... Um, I'm conscious, you know, my contemporaries are people who have done other, who are now doing other things. And I just think it would have been, for me, it would have been an indulgence. I think there's an opportunity for new people to come in with fresh ideas. Um, experience is important and remembering um, and reflecting on what's happened in the past and understanding where things have come from is really important. But I also think um, it's important that fresh eyes look at things as well. Um, it would have been indulgence to myself rather than to politics for me to think to fight to stay on. It's really difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious when people ask me about um, what did I most feel was most productive in my time in the parliament. And all of these things which were really important, being leader of my own party at a time of real challenge for our country and we were making important decisions about our future. Being a government minister was an immense privilege because you can actually... Well, the, the biggest thing about it, if you do it properly, is that you take what you want to do to a place where it actually happens and makes a difference um, in people's lives. I think that's been lost to a large extent. I don't think we any longer test the quality of what we do in the parliament by what is impacting people's lives. It's about, well, we did this, so that's a good thing. That's maybe another conversation we want to have. But of all of the things that I think about as highlights for me, um, and there was loads of them. I chaired the Public Petitions Committee for the last um, session, and it was a, an immense privilege. And, you know, if people are interested in the work of the Parliament, go and have a wee follow through what's happening in the Public Petitions Committee, because um, in a very serious way, you can, make, you can make change. But for me, the biggest privilege of all has always been when people uh, to try and do representation properly. And I don't mean by that 
signing a campaign petition or making a pledge. I mean, when somebody comes to your surgery and said, this has happened to me, this is a terrible injustice to me, nobody will listen to me, is to do what you can to help them, to try and uh, make people listen and get change in that way, but also then to say, well, why did that happen to that person? Why did that person get treated that way by the police? Why did they get treated that way by their GP? Why was nobody listening when they, they told the housing officer that they were frightened of their neighbour? And then taking that into the parliament as an issue and saying this is a matter for the attention of politics because this didn't just happen to this individual. There are things in the law, there are things in policy that has meant this injustice has happened. And that to me has always been the greatest privilege is to listen to people um, and try to understand exactly where the barriers are, what causes them and what will sort them. And in that way, you don't come with a, a, a fix. You've gone to a meeting in your local Labour Party or whatever and you've got a fix and you're going and sort it without the regard to actually what are people's lives like, what are the real things that are the barriers and then, as a consequence, what we should spend our money on to make a difference in people's lives. I think the last year and a half is different because, as I said already, the whole issue of the pandemic just changed it. I mean, when I was doing First Minister's questions as leader of the Labour Party, um, I had discovered Alex Salmond was not a very good person long before it would appear his own party had, but my job was to take on Alex Salmond in all his pomp. And my part of my strategy with Alex Salmond was to make people laugh at him because he hated the idea of being laughed at. So there was quite often a mocking tone in what I did and exposing weaknesses. I mean, things like this come out in recent months about his attitude to Putin. Well, of course, we knew that in 2014 because he had said in 2014 that Putin was a man who had um, restored national pride and that must be a good thing. And he said he admired that in him. And I did a whole um, FMQ series on that. And... That thing about, so it was theatre, because even the male-female thing, this is a man who's completely in charge, he's got a majority at his back, and his women is having the audacity to poke a stick at and make people laugh at him. So in those days, although the issues were serious, humour, um, mocking, exposing some of the kind of, you know, ridiculousness of people's positions was part of it. I think the last year and a half, you know, you... you you're in a different. You're in a different world. You know the weight of the of the responsibility of the pandemic is on government, and in those circumstances, you want whoever happens to be the first minister to succeed, because the consequences for people in their communities is massive. So getting the balance right between asking the tough questions to get information out, and recognising these are very different times, I think has 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 been a challenge, but actually. Um, Sometimes the purpose of FMQs, and it continues to be, is to get the First Minister to say something on the record, which you can then come back to. And the, I don't know, to, you'll know better than I do what the process is now, but in the past, what would have happened would be, you do the FMQs, people would recognise whether they exposed something, challenged something, uh, managed to push for change. But often it was getting someone to say something on the record and it, there would be a briefing later on with a spokesperson of the First Minister where the journalists then did their job. And that was a critical thing. You'll know better than I do whether that now happens. But that following up on what people say, following through. I mean, there are a whole series, um, and the, the being a journalist in these times is, is so different from maybe when I contemplated the possibility of doing it when I was young and I wasn't as brave as, as you all are in, in doing that job now. But I think that thing about not simply reporting what is said, but going and looking at how does that fit against what is actually happening. So the ferry scandal, I don't know to what extent any of you are following this, but we have spent £200 million for rusting hulks of ferries um, in, in uh, Port Glasgow, Greenock. But the consequence of that is not just the waste of that money, which in itself is a scandal, but we're now seeing the fleet of ferries across the, the, um, the islands failing with a direct economic impact on those rural and, and remote communities, which will, will, may never recover from the fact that if you don't have a reliable transport link, these are lifeline uh, links um, to, to the islands, um, that is an utter 
failure and scandal. Now, nobody in an FMQ is going to be able to get to that. But I think the challenge I would put to you as journalists is what do you do when you see that question? How do you go? The investigative role of the journalist is now needed more than ever in a world when there are so many spokespeople and people spinning and advisors and all the rest of it. It's hard to get to the core of things um, where you know social media is a half-answered line that you can get. But that digging down into where were the decisions made, it, sometimes it's the small things you can tug away at. So I'll give you an example. One of the, if you remember the Salmond inquiry, one of the things that came out of it was, I think it was something like £55,000, £70,000 was spent tutoring or training civil servants for their, their attendance at that committee. And at the same time, I've got a constituent whose cousin um, has a learning disability supported by his, his family. And he had £5,000 a year social care monies, which to, you know self-directed support is called, to spend on something that would sustain the family. Under COVID, that was taken away and was never replaced, was never restored. And in fact, they said, well, we've reassessed you, you don't need that. But that £5,000 a year paid for somebody to come and take him out once a week to go and do stuff that he couldn't do independently, gave his carer, who's working full-time, a break and a confidence that he was happy. Um, and she's now at breaking point. The money won't come back. And it's £5,000. I'm saying you could have 10 years of support for that person from one attendance at a parliamentary committee. So I think what is also happening is that the sense of duty and responsibility with public money should be greater now than ever than any other time. In the middle of a pandemic, not pen, one penny should not be spent that is wasted, but should be focusing on our young people, your educational opportunities, your job opportunities, what the health service is going to be like, reaching into the families who have been most affected, young people affected by not being at school. And I don't think that rigour exists. And I think part of the job of journalists is to start looking at that, where is that money going? You know, it's not enough, it's not good enough to say, well, we're looking after such such a person by giving that amount of money to that organisation and never asking whether it makes any difference or not. Um, and I think that's another big theme I have brought from, you know, into, you know from my time working in, um, as, a, as an MSP, that the, being casual with other people's money, not being rigorous about what you're spending your money on, has a direct impact on what you can spend your money on. So there isn't enough money in the system to support a guy one day a week, £5,000 a year. But nobody would question that you would, of course, there has to be money to support somebody for an attendance at a parliamentary committee. I just think that is, that is stark to me, and particularly in times of COVID, that we, we're spending, you know, we will be spending money on a pilot on should there be a four-day week or not. Now, even if it was only £10,000, I could think I'd better way to spend the money. But it's also a signal to somebody because most young people will know better than I do. Nobody works a five-day week. Nobody works a four-day week or a five-day week. They work the hours that they're given and they have to be available across the whole week in order so you get your roster and top one son. You know, he has to be available seven days a week. He's paid the same whether he works a Monday or a, um, a holiday or whatever. And he has to work. So this idea that we're going to spend any money whatsoever investigating the feasibility of people only working a four-day week when fragile work, exploitative work, is a much bigger challenge um, is one of the indulgences of people, I think, that have control of budgets. And I, I would rather they had the right goods. One mother was a great Presbyterian and nothing was spent unless it was needed. And I think we maybe need to be a bit of that in, in government. It's not very fashionable, but I just think that we desperately need to spend money where it's needed and we just need to strip out the money that's just wasted. Time now for our reporter's notebook. This week, Ashley Keenan-Bryce reflects on covering the election count in Perth. For a politics enthusiast such as myself, being offered the opportunity to attend the count for the 2021 Scottish parliamentary elections in Perth was a dream come true. This is a very important time for our country and I felt that by attending the count and covering the election, I'd play my own small part in an event that I knew I'd remember forever. Arriving in Perth on election day, the one-hour drive from my home in Greenock felt like a million miles away. 
I settled into my hotel overlooking the beautiful River Tay and excitedly prepared my equipment for the following day. As I entered Bell Sports Centre on Friday the 7th of March, the ballots had been cast and the polling stations closed for over 12 hours. In normal times, we would have had a result by now, but this is Covid times, and as journalists claimed their stations and the candidates paced nervously around, the count began in earnest. As a first-time attendee, I thought my nerves would show through and I would be found out instantly as a newbie, but the nerves in the hall were high, so I fit right in. From my vantage point, I saw Deputy First Minister John Swinney walking slowly around the hall with MP Pete Wishart. As the candidates walked around, they stared intently at the clear plastic boxes that the counting agents were separating ballots into. Each box was labelled with a candidate's surname. Swinney, Fraser, Smart, Barrett, Marshall. For now, we could only but guess from what we could see as to what the results would be. Before I knew it, the counting tables were empty and the first big moment was upon us. Returning officer Barbara Renton took to the stage to announce the turnout. I quickly grabbed my audio recorder, pen and paper and rushed to the stage with my mouth dry and hands shaking. For the previous Scottish parliamentary election in 2016, the Perthshire North constituency had 34,025 votes, a 62.7% turnout. But this was 2021 and the constituency was about to return a historical vote. I can confirm 40,268 votes have been cast, the returning officer announced, representing a 69.9% turnout. Shocked gasps surrounded me and each journalist ran back to their table to fill the first story of the day. Perthshire North delivers the highest turnout in the constituency's history. The manager of the radio station had attended the count with me and as I frantically typed away at my computer, it took me a few seconds to register what he was saying to me. You're going to go live on air at 2.15, give an overview of what's going on. My eyes widened and I shook my head. No, I couldn't do that. I was a writer. I cannot present on the radio. Flash forward to 2.15, where not only do I find myself speaking to an on-air colleague, describing the scenes around me, I also see the returning officer once again take to the stage, this time to announce the winner. The nerves from hours previously now seem minuscule in comparison to this moment as I quickly excused myself from broadcasting live and ran once again notebook in hand to the stage. The candidates lined in front as the returning officer announced... John Swinney, 19,860. John Ramsey Swinney is duly re-elected as MSP for Perthshire North. A cheer went across the room like wildfire and following a quick acceptance speech, the newly elected MSP left the hall to be interviewed by the media. I quickly followed and found myself next in line to interview one of the most powerful politicians in Scotland. As I settled back into my hotel room that night, I couldn't quite believe what I had achieved that day, nor could I believe it wasn't over yet. Perthshire South still had to be counted and I had to do it all again tomorrow. Ashley Keenan-Brice with her reporter's notebook at the election count in Perth.